0: back again with the Principles of Performance podcast. Welcome, everyone. My name is Eric Degatti, along with my sidekick, Mike Perry. Michael, welcome to the show once again for episode number four. And to kick things off, we're, we're currently recording this. It is summertime 2022, and I'm going to paint the scenario. You're, you're at a barbecue or pool party, and someone finds out you're a trainer, and immediately they're going to ask you about every exercise in their program. And they're going to say, Mike, is this a good exercise? And what's the first thing you do?
1: I shake my head and grab another beer. No, <laughs> exactly. um, try to
0: get out of that conversation.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So um, that's what we're going to basically talk about is we, we teach about program design and how to put together effective training programs for, for fitness and health and performance. And so most people go first to exercises, right? They, they say, okay, well, how am I going to choose the best exercises for my program? And hopefully you're going to learn, uh, over the course of, of this discussion is that that's one of many, many, many variables. And there's a lot of thought that actually goes into what makes an exercise go into your program or not. So, um, I think a big part of, of distinguishing the, the, um, format and, and really the foundation of what we're going to talk about today is, is something that you talk about, Mike, is, is the difference between a program and a workout, right? Because they're, they're two very different things, but people don't always understand that. So let, why don't we clarify that first? Because that's going to give some context to how we choose exercises.
1: So the simplest way to look at it is a workout is simply a standalone training session, right? People always ask, what's a great workout for You know, whatever it is, agility, speed, this and that. What's a great workout to get my legs stronger and individual workouts are fine every once in a while. If you want to do something fun, maybe it's for charity or et cetera, but individual workouts aren't necessarily going to move the needle because they're standalone. They don't have a progression to them in general. And that's one of the main differences. Anybody can create a workout. Literally, they have apps that are basically where you can uh, roll fake dice on your phone and do 10 burpees and 10 jump squats and they have the the deck of cards thing same thing you, you you know fly out a deck of cards and you do x amount of pushups anybody can put together a workout you could literally take a toddler and they could just like throw things at a wall and you could figure out a way to get a workout so workouts are easy workouts are i don't want to say useless but in in general workouts are easy to do anybody can put together a workout it doesn't you don't need a uh, a large educational background to put a workout together. Now designing a quality progressive program. Well, that's very, very different because we have a starting point. We have an ending point. um, We have a certain amount of time that we're trying to achieve our goals. And there's a systematic approach to actually designing a program. And, And that's one of the biggest things I think people miss is they think that a workout and a program are the same thing. And a program will slowly and methodically get you towards your goals, hopefully. And a workout is generally a standalone thing. And here's the scoop. There are workouts within a program, but oftentimes there isn't a program within that workout. And, and that's, that's one of the biggest issues. So in general, programs, a lot more methodology, a lot more of a systematic approach, a lot more thought, whereas a workout, it can just be a standalone session and, and you can go from there.
0: So I think to, to kind of go a little deeper and kind of set more context is a program has a why, right? And and so sometimes the the workout, the only why is I just want to sweat and work hard and have fun. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? So I have a, a good friend of mine who became a spin instructor, you know, a couple of years back. And every once in a while, I'll go take a spin class. It's a blast. And, and we have a lot of fun. He has great music and it's it's not going to give me any specific return. Yeah, I burn some calories and I'll get a little bit of fitness and um, cardiovascular response, but it's it's not going there with a specific end goal. So where we have a program, this is more about the why. All right. So why are we doing this? And so we always want to say um, if if we were to stop into your facility, whether it's a, a physical therapy clinic, whether it's a, a open gym, or whether it's a, a personal training center, that if I was uh, named the czar of exercise, which I, I, I'm going to point myself the czar of exercise, of, of the entire okay. world, world council of exercise, right? It doesn't exist. So, might as well make myself the head of it. Um, and if I walked in and said, you need to give me a really good reason why you're doing that. And this was the standard I used for, for my staff when I had my own personal training center is that I would say, if, if your client ever asks you, why are we doing this? If you can't give them a really clear cogent answer that, that ties in with their goal, well, they should be able to go to the front desk and get their money back. Because if not, and you're just showing exercises, well, I can get those for free on YouTube or Instagram. Why do I need you that? Well, I, what I'm coming to you for is the program and the why, Now, like you put earlier, is that we're working with the end goal in mind, we're kind of reverse engineering it. So if we look at what is the end product and the end environment we need this person to be prepared for, then we kind of build back from there. So like I have a bunch of college kids home right now for summer who are training and and one in particular, his one of his primary things, his strength coach told him is he needs to improve his his power clean. His power clean is, is not good compared to the rest of his lifts. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that because of movement restrictions and things like that. But if I need to send him back in August ready to do that lift, I need to then methodically break that down. Well, the first thing I need to do is say, what are the elements of that clean? Can he front squat and even hold that rack position, which he couldn't? Um, Is he good at a deadlift, which he was okay? And can he do a high pull? No. So he couldn't connect those dots. So if he couldn't do it individually, and if we look at exercises, they can be either letters They can be words, they can be sentences, or they can be a full uh, conversation, right? To use an analogy is that I need to first get the letters to make words, to make the sentences, to then speak the language. And when you talk about something as complex as an Olympic lift, that's a, that's a pretty intricate language. And so because of that, understanding the, the end goal and then reverse engineering from there is, is pretty important. Um, So With that, um, some of the challenges that we have with exercises is that we immediately look into what we call this for that type of approach, right? That's the next question, you know, that you get at the pool party is, Mike, what can I do for, what kind of exercise can I do for this? And they'll point to their obliques or or I, you know, do you have any stretches for my low back?
1: Yeah, that's a big one right there. Right. That's (laughs) it.
0: You like, so that this for that mentality can be pretty limiting because it's not quite that simple, is it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I wish it were, that would make our life uh, a lot easier, but um, you know, it's kind of like going to the doctors and being like, doc, I need some medicine. He's going to go, well, first of all, why? And second of all, we need to look at all of your vitals, your labs, and then you can make a better decision. So I think people, people just want a quick and easy answer. And um, you know, it's not like you're saying what's my favorite restaurant, right? It's, it's, you know, we need a lot more context and we need to know a lot more about those individuals before we give them information. Because, um, you know, like a lot of times the low back stuff, you know, most people don't need to stretch their low back. Maybe there's something else causing the low back issue. Right. So just simply handing out stretches and exercises. I mean, maybe could you have a decently educated guest? Yeah. But at the same time, if you don't know anything about that individual, um, it's somewhat negligent to just give them a handful of things. If you don't know a damn thing about them.
0: Yeah. So you have to, and, and we steal uh, from Simon Sinek all the time is start with why, well, why is your low back even hurting in the first place? So well, what did you do to it? It was it from sitting for too long? Is it um, from a traumatic incident that you had, or when does it bother you? Does it bother you more inflection and extension and rotation and side bending? And so without that context, you're really just guessing at best. It's basically the workout version of, of, you know, of rehab. So then you end up becoming, or the other problem we have now is in, in today's social media world is everybody wants eye candy, right? There's, there's things that'll get clicks and there's things that won't. Um, and a lot of the stuff that's hugely effective isn't going to get you know, a whole lot of clicks or followers um, because it's really fundamental and not all that sexy. Um, but we chase after the eye candy. And so I always tell the story when we teach about um, a, a guy, he's actually a real guy. People always ask me, "Is it? Did I make this up?" No, called cool, cool exercise guy. So when I had my facility, we had a situation where if you were to come on as a trainer, we would say, "Okay, for the first month, just come in and just observe our sessions." and take notes kind of on the side and then ask us any questions you want. And at the same time, you come in and bring your clients in and train them because we wanna just see how you operate and so forth. And we wanna make sure it's kind of like a dating period to see, you know, is this gonna be a good relationship? And so we had one guy came in, he had a Steno notepad and he'd come in, watch our sessions for a couple hours at a clip. And he would just sit there literally and just write down, oh, cool exercise and write it down and say, oh, I like that, that's cool and write it down. And so, you know, my staff started joking and like, say, hey, is cool exercise guy coming in today? Because that's all he did was stand around and write down cool exercises. And then, so I asked at a staff meeting, I said, did that guy ever ask anybody any questions? Like, why are you doing that? Or how come you did this? Or didn't, wouldn't you want to do this first? No, he just wrote down cool exercises. So obviously it wasn't a fit for us. And he wasn't really intrigued by the process. He just wanted a bunch of cool exercises. So we parted our ways and he ended up working at some other center down the road. And I always joke that I want to walk in there one day and find out he's doing a really cool exercise with a a male high school football player that we use for women with incontinence. Like That's a really cool exercise with a really bad application. It's not going to work. So you just went for the attraction and the eye candy. So with that, we want to have a little bit more context of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, And so with that, we also have to understand the, the context of the bigger picture of the program. So in, the, in, in our pro- principles of program design course, we have actually 10 program elements that build a program and e- exercise selection movement is one of them. So before we ever get to that, what are some of the other things you want to consider before you can even answer that question of, is this a good exercise for this?
1: Well, I mean, I think we... Uh... We've, we've done this so many times, but we have to have a proper intake. We know we need to know their movement, health, their movement, competency, and then all of those other questions that we really cover in the course, which is, you know, what does your daily life look like? What is your job? What is your sleep? What is your travel? What are your other activities that uh, you're doing besides here? So I, I think we have to gather so much more information than we initially thought because people, when they think program design, they think sets and reps and that's it. Right. And yes, that's important, but it's like you said, it's kind of the last thing because we need to know all of this other information beforehand before we can start doling out all these uh, simple exercises. And um, it is an art and a science and I'll be the first one to admit early on, there were so many things that I had missed. And if I knew that information ahead of time, um, I think my clients would have had uh, a better outcome. So there's just so much to cover, but going back to one thing you said, I wanted to cover about sort of the online stuff, right? Um, cool exercises. You see them on Instagram and and what, what gets the most amount of likes on Instagram? It's, it's, it's sort of novel exercises and fancy stuff, right? It's sex sells. So it's, it's a bikinis and abs for everybody. And then lastly, it's things that crush you. Like those seem to be like the three biggest hits out there. And, and the problem with that is it's marketing. It's not strength and conditioning, it's marketing. And, and people need to understand that social media is being leveraged to make money. So what you're looking at is a highlight reel to get your attention to hopefully get you to buy something or click on a site or whatever. So, um, you know, that's something to consider when it comes to everything that you're seeing in social media. So remember, it's not necessarily about trying to become or build better athletes or create more durable, resilient athletes. It's about money. So we have to take that information. So when we do design a program, going back to the program design component, we need to truly understand that, What's going to move the needle safely and effectively versus what is going to, um, just look cool and, and maybe smoke someone, but there's so many things that we just have to consider before those sets and reps happen. And, uh, we got to ask a lot of questions and that's one of the things that we, we talk about in our courses. There's going to be a lot more questions asked than you would originally anticipate.
0: You're starting to have me question my faith in, uh, steroid filled mountain men with their shirt off eating organ meats in the middle of the woods as they do cool (laughs) exercise. Um, so when we talk about those program elements, there's 10 of them, right? And the first, we break them into blocks, actually, in, 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 in subsections. So the first subsection is created by the organism. That's by the person in front of you. And you don't control that. You don't control that. I don't get to control the team that I was just in front of or the or who walks in your door for, for personal training. And because they have unique goals and histories and lifestyles that you don't get to pick. You don't get to choose what their job is. Um, then the next next section is determined by the environment right that environment are you working out at home with just some dumbbells and a peloton bike or are you working out in a commercial gym all those things are going to affect and impact your decision making um, to what you're going to do and and we talked about the facility setup uh in our in our last episode and how that impacts training so if you want to do a circuit well go, go try to do a circuit in la fitness at 5 30 on a monday night as soon as you get to your second station, that, that last thing is gone and taken. So that's going to impact my exercise selection. Um, and then the last piece, that's the one that everybody focuses on. That's really determined by science, right, in terms of reps and sets and so forth. Now, tying in with that is a big misconception is that the exercise is what determines the result, when it's not really the case. So people think, well, I have to, to get To get big and strong, I have to do deadlifts and squats and those types of things. And yeah, those are great exercises, but that's not the only path to get there. And let's say if you do a squat and you do it for, Two really heavy reps. Mike, you just had a guy go, you know, and in, in compete in, in the nationals and in, in uh, powerlifting, or you could do sets of six to 10 reps, or you could do a set of 20, or you could do a set of hundred bodyweight squats. All those things are going to create different effects, but they're all squats at the end of the day. So does the exercise really determine the result? So that's something we have to consider because you have to think of the exercise in context. Right. So if we look at our session charts, right. And now we're going to build a workout within a program. We have our movement prep slash warm-up. We may have a, a section for core, we may have a section for power and a section for strength and all these things. So that's going to create some context. So theoretically, couldn't a squat go in all of those sections?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It could. And that that's that's where it gets confusing.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's the question is, okay. So like, I know you do an awesome job using like prying goblet squats as part of your movement prep. Right. Mm -hmm. But then you can also do a squat jump from our power section. You could also do some sort of, Maybe squat with a with a band around the knees or, or something to create more awareness for more motor control. You could do a squat, obviously, for strength or for power. Or, you know, there's a bunch of different ways that you, you know, you can incorporate that same movement on different sections of your chart. And so that's going to create different strategies. So, like you and I both teach for FMS. So we talk about like some of the corrective exercise that we show. We say, well, understand it when the context of you asked us a question about a chop or a lift or even a deadlift? Are we talking about, And you know, when we ask us what's the right way to do it or how do we execute it? Well, are you using this for conditioning or using it for correcting? Because they're two different things. Sometimes we may do a drill to create greater awareness from a a learning and a movement standpoint. And other times we're doing it to create a physiological effect. And how we would coach that would be really different depending on what the end goal is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I have really changed in in the last few years when I've been working with people is um, what is the adaptation that I'm looking for? If the adaptation is speed, we we have to look at the physiological guidelines that were given to us by sports scientists over the previous 50, 60, 70 years, right? So we need to determine, okay, what is our adaptation? And then with that, what is the general parameters that we need to uh, implement to reach that adaptation? And then we decide what is the best exercise that will align with those two other components. So again, it's reverse engineering. If you you kind of listen to what we say, there's a common theme, but um, there's so many factors that go into it. So chase you know look at look at what that adaptation is, and then you have to again look at the guidelines, and then you have to pick the exercise that will be best for that client. And then we have to discover, hey, listen, how much time do we have? Because if we've got six to seven weeks and I need to try to improve a vertical leap of someone, I'm not going to do Olympic lifting if they've never done Olympic lifting before, because we're going to spend six to seven weeks acquiring skill. And sure, will we get a little bit of, you know, maybe a little bit of power out of it in the the process? Yes. But in that short amount of time, our, our goal was power, but it was really, the program actually ended up being just skill acquisition. We didn't get more powerful because we were learning. So, there's so many components and and those few things are just something to consider when you are designing a program.
0: Yeah. So it's the, the, the expression I use, are we learning or burning? Like which one are we trying to do here? Are we trying to create a physiological effect? Are we trying to acquire that movement skill? And then there's a bunch of, you keep mentioning the, the other things you need to consider it's, each thing is going to have a different impact depending on who that individual is and consider what are their daily activities. So what is their goal environment that they need to go into? um, What's their medical history, injury history, training history? Um, So trying to teach something like an Olympic lift to someone who has no training history is a very different thing than trying to teach someone who actually has some foundation behind it. Um, And then even your facility is going to determine, you know, what, like I said before, what, what exercises that you choose in terms of things. And so, you know, I like to, to use things in in groups of three, it's my OCD. And so, like I always say in my, in my decision-making, there's three big things. There's, there's access how much access do I have? Is this a one-on-one personal training session? Is this a small group session like at your place where you have about 12 people in a group? Or is this me with a team like today where I had 44 high school kids uh, in a weight room? Or is it maybe something even remote where I'm doing this over FaceTime or Zoom? That's going to make some some decision-making for me as far as exercise goes. So something that may be a great lift, and uh, we'll go back to the Olympic lift, maybe have huge benefit. Um, but if I don't have the time to teach it or I don't have the right uh, way to supervise and really coach it well, then that exercise doesn't become as good of a choice. So that's going to have some impact. So so access is a, is a big decision maker. Information, right? So I don't have the same information with these 40 kids in a weight room that you have on your one-on-one client. So you know all their history their their likes their dislikes and what makes them tick i don't know that for all these kids i I don't even know their names half the time so i have to go with a lower common denominator from from um a selection standpoint, and then the last, but certainly not least, probably most important, is safety. Right? What's going to be the thing that's not going to hurt anybody? You don't want to be known as the one that hurts people. And then we get into certain things that are considered high risk exercises. So uh, you're very well versed in in, uh, in kettlebells. You know, being a, a senior instructor for for Strong First, so I'm sure you get a lot of it with kettlebells. Right? What is safe? What is not safe? And people scared of you know these balls with, with metal handles attached to them. So kind of talk about how it applies just as an example with kettlebells.
1: Well, I think uh, so many people come in and they go, I want to learn kettlebell training, right? That's what they say. I want to learn kettlebells. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? Right. Are you looking to learn sort of the hard style system that popularized in the U S and nine times out of 10, it's that right. Um, but explain to them, listen, kettlebell training can be one of the most efficient and powerful ways to, to get strong, to get durable, to get resilient. But there is a decent amount of skill that, that goes along with it. and if you're not willing to put the time in to acquire that skill and practice that skill, it's probably not a good modality for you because you can't just jump in and start you know doing a long cycle clean and jerk or start trying to snatch, right? So we always have to let people know, listen, there is an amount of time that you're going to have to spend acquiring skill. Now depending on the in- individual and their background, some will be shorter, some will be longer. but It does take skill and and with that skill, we're going to layer it. We're going to start to add things um, to the basics and that way we can learn a little bit more, but we get a practice component out of it as well. So I I think the biggest issue with a lot of these uh, modalities that take a little bit of extra time to learn is people want immediately, they want the the butt kicking workout, but they don't want to put the time in to learn to do it safely and effectively. And that that is the biggest issue that I find with kettlebell training.
0: Now, another thing I'll, I'll kind of, uh, pick up on that, that comes from Pavel is, uh, the expression he talks about the, what the hell effect, which pretty much flies in the face of the, this for that approach, right? That if I do this exercise for this muscle, I'll get this result, um, where he talks about the, what the hell effect that sometimes you could step away from deadlifting for months and do nothing but kettlebell swings and come back and your deadlift got better. Um, we, and I think what that speaks to, and, and I'd like to get your slant on it is, I, I think that speaks to the fact that we still don't really know. We just don't. And I think part of that is because there's just way too many factors from someone's sleep to their nutrition, to their training history, to their, um, to their ability to, to acquire skill and, and their, their motor learning. I think there's just so many d- factors that go into what makes someone successful or not successful with an exercise program that this what the hell effect kind of makes the answers, you know, makes for an easy answer. It's kind of like when the doctor says, oh, it's all in your head. because they don't have an answer, right? But the what the hell effect for trainers is kind of, it's kind of that, that same thing. Like, I don't understand what just happened, but everything put together in the soup made something happen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, for example, you mentioned deadlifts and swings. And uh, if you look at the West side barbell model, right? The conjugate system, they have basically a heavy day and a speed day, right? So um, they're gonna do their heavy, heavy grinds on one day and on another day, they're gonna do their speed work. And I think one of the beautiful things that kettlebell training can really add to your training program is there's a speed component. Um, Depending on your skill level, there's that active eccentric uh, overload where you can actively pull down And, um, the cool thing about that is, uh, Brett, Brett Jones, a good friend of both of ours has done some work on force plates. And, uh, I want to say that he was able to produce like four times body weight eccentrically into a force plate when he's swinging like a a 24 uh, or a 28 kilo kettlebell. So, um, if you think about the ability to move a very, very lightish weight, but quickly, that's where you get that ground force, uh, sort of, uh, that's where you can put more force into the ground, and that's one of the reasons why I think we get that very, very nice sort of carryover. And I also think training age plays a huge role with that because that's not going to happen with someone that's never trained before. But um, it's it's pretty cool to see individuals that have taken a little bit of time off, and you know they they don't lose much. And that's the beauty of kettlebells too, because well, you know it, it's super efficient, and you can take one just about anywhere you want. So, but I think there's absolutely carryover, and I think we have some ideas as to why it works. But I think there are some other times where. We really just don't. And there's just so many variables.
0: Now, the other thing is that, that I think this challenges, and this, and this gets people really uncomfortable in their comfort zone, is that there's more than one way to get the same uh, effect and they all work and they're all right, right? That you can conclusively all be right. So uh, I was on Anthony Renna's podcast and I was talking about, if you look at two of the greats you know, you look at Pavel and all he's done with kettlebells and, and, and the elegance he's brought to the Turkish getup. And then you look at, um, you know, uh, other people who, who completely trash the getup, right? Who think that, it, um, that it's a complete waste of time. Uh, um, Coach Vermeil, who's one of the most successful tre- strength coaches in history, right? He said, you know, if anybody did a getup in my facility, I tell them to get up and get out of here. Right, they're both insanely successful, and they're both brilliant minds. Are they both wrong, or maybe they're just both right? um, And they have the little bit of their own cognitive biases that they bring into their training. And so, even when we have this debate about unilateral versus bilateral training, Matt Rea, who's brilliant mind, who was the head of performance for Alabama uh, football. And he just did some, some data collection and showed that when he did strictly unilateral training, he didn't really lose much. If anything, he gained in some areas over bilateral training. Now, is it, to, is it have to be this, um, one versus the other one camp versus the other? No, it, you can actually do both and you can do both, you know, very well together. And so we, we look at our exercise selection. It doesn't have to be this black or white type of thing. Now, You know, one small point with with exercise too, and and I I had just had this with an email from an attendee at a course who asked me a question about something. And I said, the first thing we need to do is clarify, like, what are you even talking about? So here's what I mean. She sent me, what do you think of this drill? And I said, well, tell me what that drill means to you. Because if we look at, I'll give you an example. You have on hands and knees, if you extend one arm and one leg, what is it called?
1: quadruped diagonal or a bird dog
0: quadruped diagonal bird dog paul Czech goes a horse stance uh horizontal like we probably there's probably four names for the same exercise Mm. and it's all coached for different reasons and so we have to clear up and and clarify first before we say we can sit here and say those are great or those suck we have to clarify well what are you even talking about because there is no there's there's no exercise library that jives with the next exercise library because what I have named, one thing named in my exercise library, you have probably named something completely different. And mm-hmm. sometimes I just name it based on what I think is the easiest thing for the client to, to recognize and remember. Like... We have a, a drill that that I use for kind of connecting the 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 cross chain of the adductor with the opposite oblique. It's done in supine and the legs are straight up in the air. And we bring one leg out to the side and then back in. In uh FMS uh their exercise library, they call the unilateral hip flex rotation. Right. No, nobody's gonna remember that. So I call it, <laughs> I I call it lying windshield wipers, right? That yeah. makes more sense, right? But you probably don't call it that, nor does anybody else. So if you were to go on social media and say or line windshield wiper is good, nobody's gonna know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> yeah, and actually uh, something to add to that, one of the things that I've done specifically with younger athletes when they haven't been around the training room, I say, you name it, name it whatever you want. Because if they name it, it shows that they have a little bit of ownership in it. And next time when they go to do that exercise, they could call whatever they want, the, the wheelbarrow. I don't know, just call whatever the heck you want. And as long as as long as you execute it right, I don't care what you call it, um, because it doesn't make a difference the name, as long as you execute it right, that's that's really what we're looking for.
0: Yeah. And and that brings up a key point that we haven't even touched on is if we're talking about an exercise or good or bad, it really comes down to well, it, it, in context of how well you do it and how elegant you are and, and precise you are in your movement. So there's a, a post that, that uh, we just put up on social media that I put together a chart and I call my risk reward chart. And you have low risk, moderate risk or high risk. And then you have reward, low, moderate, high. Now, obviously the, the best case scenario is low risk, high reward, right? And that's something like breathing. Nobody's ever gotten jacked up doing breathing. Right. So if you do some concentrated breathing drills, whether it's to try to improve performance, whether it's try to improve recovery, whether it's to try to improve fitness, that's a that's a huge bang for your buck with very little risk. Then you have things like foam rolling. Right. It's it's low risk, but it's debatable whether how much long lasting benefit you're going to get from that. No one ever felt worse after doing it, but I don't know anybody that's that's been cured by it. Right. That that's been the end all then you go keep going down the line of all these different combinations where you have like Olympic lifting where it's it's high risk, but it can also have high reward. And that's relative to the ability of the coach and the ability of the, the end user to actually apply that thing. So risk is, is going to be relative to who it's applied for and reward is going to be relative to who it's applied for. So when we make decisions, we have to weigh out risk reward. So if you look at if Brett can create four times body weight, right, and he's creating, you know, um, six, 700 pounds of force eccentrically, and he can do that without having, holding, having to hold a six, 700 pound bar, I would say the risk probably goes down a little bit, right, um, especially with someone who's very skilled with a kettlebell. Um, so that's where we have to also make our decisions, kind of weighing out this risk reward thing to say, okay, what is, what is best case scenario? What is worst case scenario? And then, so with that, at the end of the day, people are going to listen to this and say, okay, so what exercise do you really hate? So go ahead, Mike. Give us a little hate.
1: hate. Well, um, there's exercises that I don't program a lot, um, but there are sometimes uh, exercises that I do. So for example, I'm not a big burpee guy, and I know a lot of people like to just crap on burpees, but if you're doing a Spartan race, you need to get efficient at burpees because that's part of the, the penalty system, right? If you don't make a, you know, make an obstacle, you have to do burpees. So for some people, I actually think burpees, if they are going to do a Spartan race, isn't a bad thing in the world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, we have this thing called a sprawl. It's very, very similar to a burpee. Now I drill, you know, I'll drill some sprawls with people, but it's, it's not sort of in a conditioning type fashion. So, um, again, I don't necessarily hate certain exercises. I just, I prefer others based off of my goals. And then I, and then I go from there. So I'm not really married to anything. I mean, I just, uh, I I try to make the decisions, that are gonna allow my clients to reach their goals as quickly and as safely as possible, but I need to know everything about them and, and what they're going to ask of their body because that's a big component of exercise selection in general.
0: Yeah. And, and that's something that people don't understand. Like, I don't care what exercise you do. I have no investment in what exercise you do in your program. I've seen enough people do enough exercises over 24 years that whether I give you a single leg deadlift or whether I give you a kettlebell swing, it doesn't matter to me at the end of the day. I really don't care. That being said, anything done on a BOSU ball, I pretty much makes my 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 skin crawl um and it. i don't know if it's even so much of the exercise it's just those damn things never have a place in the facility that actually gets out of your way and so i end up moving it from one spot to another to get out of my way more times than not and i, I just want to pop it and throw it in the ocean so um with with you know, apologies to the, to the kind people at Bosu. It just, there's no place that that thing fits in my small little facility to make it work. And at the end of the day, I, I don't use it for anything. Right. So, um, so, uh, let's flip, let's flip the coin a little bit. Let's finish up. What's some of your favorites, like what's some of your go-tos like we talk about in, in the course, like there's some kind of big bang exercises that cover a lot of ground for a lot of reasons that end up showing up in some variation or machination in almost all your programs, what would those be?
1: Um, so I love teaching some version of a single leg deadlift. Um, generally, um, we start a lot of our athletes out with some isometric holds using a wall just to get them into the, the, the optimal position or shape for, for that individual. And then we'll go into like a cage assisted deadlift where they're doing it with a, with a hand support. And then if they're ready for it down the road, um, we'll, we'll get them into sort of, a, an unassisted true, uh, single arm, single leg deadlift. So that's something that is one of my favorites. Um, I would say that another one is, uh, is just row variations, right? Invert maybe it's an inverted row with a TRX. And one of the reasons why I love that is just depending on, um, how you position, uh, the arms and the extremities, you can get different adaptations. If you really want to focus on, you know, firing up the latch, you can keep those elbows nice and tight to the ribs and really focus on a little bit of extension. If you want to, you know, focus on the rhomboids, you can go a little bit higher and get at that 45 degree angle. That's another one. And then lastly, if you want to work on that posterior delt, you can do like a high pull. So I think some sort of row variation is huge. And um, I would actually say the last one would be just uh, uh, probably some farmer's carries, just some loaded carries, uh, something that's going to challenge someone's pace, their cadence, their posture, um, I think far too many people, uh, go too heavy, but I've seen some pretty cool things happen with, with carries in general. So I would say those would be my top three. Um, and then if we were going to add something else, I would say a getup variation. And here's why everybody is going to get up off the floor at some point. Now, whether you're a fighter, you're going to be doing a tactical stand up. If you like kettlebells, you're going to be doing a loaded get up. but everybody is going to be on the ground at some point. Watch them get up. They're going to get up in some way, shape, or form that is going to resemble a Turkish getup. We're not dealing with the biomechanical component and and introducing a load, but it's interesting to watch people because especially if they're older, getting up and down off the ground can be really, really tough. So if you give them strategies on how to do that, it's essentially teaching them the several components of a a Turkish getup.
0: Yeah, so... the. Some overlap that I have is, is starting with the getup and, and understanding that the, the beauty of the getup is that it can be broken down into so many pieces. And then within that, I can utilize it and leverage it for so many different goals. I can use it as a mobility drill. I can use it as a a control and stability drill. I can use it for strength. Um, I can use it for so many different things and different parts of it that there's usually at least one piece of that that I'm going to put somewhere, um, whether it's in your movement prep or or whether it's a a filler. Uh, When We talked about the five Fs. Uh, that we use to put together a workout that you know fillers is one of them, and that's one of those. We can use a piece of the get up as as one of those. Um, also love the single leg deadlift. Um, I think there's so much gold in there and it can be used again for multiple things. I could use it as a mobility drill. I can use it for, for strength and really load that thing up. I can use it for control and balance, or I can even use it for athletic purposes is deceleration in the hamstring and using whether it's a tidal tank or a medicine ball and getting you from the top position to the bottom position as fast as possible and learning how to, you know, your hamstrings are really your brakes. how to access those quickly. Um, I actually wrote a, um, an article and did a piece for, for, uh, functional And I called it the, the, the best, most frustrating exercise you've ever used. And that's the single leg deadlift. Um, other things that, that, uh, Uh, I love carries and carries don't have to be just farmer's carries. They could be single arm. They could be rack position. They could be overhead, any combination of those things, six point carries. Those are some awesome things um, to kind of learn posture and awareness and self-organization. And then uh, if there was a couple other I would add is I love uh, a single leg squat, whether it's progressing to a pistol is maybe part of someone's progression, but even just a simple single leg box squat to look at, If there's any significant unilateral deficits in terms of strength and control from one side to the other, that eccentric component of loading, I think does a huge amount for helping out with, with, uh, strengthening tendons and, and, um, joint integrity of just even just being able to lower yourself down on a single leg onto a box. Um, there's a lot of gold in there. Then in terms of the upper body, different progressions slash regressions of the pushup And pull up, and and that may mean you just do some some hanging off a bar and just creating that brachiation. Katie Bowman talks about this in 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 a lot of her movement books and the power of that and learning scapular control and, and building grip strength and all those things. I think hanging in and eventually progressing into a pull-up slash chin-up is huge uh, in terms of finding its way into almost every one of my programs. And then any version of the push-up, whether it's a simple plank or different versions of the push-up, again, can be leveraged for so many different uh, goals that we have that there's there's always going to be a way that that finds its way into one of my programs for whoever it may be. And then it's just a difference of the velocity curve and the force and the, the, the amplitude and speed. And and that's really the biggest differences. So anything you'd like to add in terms of the guy who asked you at the pool party, is this a good exercise?
1: Um, you know, I would, I would just give them a, a, a quick question back. What is your goal? And right away, they're going to go, they're not going to know what to do. Right. Because I, I think they're expecting, they're expecting the answer. And, um, you know, I, I think the one thing that we really need to consider is that context is king, and um, you know, but simply just barking out your favorites isn't going to do anybody any favors. So I'm not saying that you can't help, but just be honest with them. Just say, "Hey, listen, I don't know anything about you, right? I I don't have the answer for you, but um, you know, if you ever want to talk a little bit more about this, we can do that." Um, but I think uh, I think just simply giving someone a, a, a a blank answer or an answer with zero context is, is, uh, is barking up the wrong tree.
0: Yeah. We, uh, I put out a post and and said my three favorite answers after being in this business for 24 years is number one, I don't know. Um, Number two is maybe, maybe not. And then number three is it depends. Yeah. Um, And so uh, with that, we'll kind of put a bow on how we choose exercises, some of our favorite exercises and how they make their way into our programs as well as the ones that that don't make their way in. And so uh, this is all brought to you by uh, the Principles of Program Design course, which is a course for anybody who uses exercise as their mode of creating human improvement, Um, whether that be health, whether that be fitness, whether that be performance, whether you're a, a physical therapist or a group exercise coach or a personal trainer, strength coach, If you're using exercise to try to improve someone's condition, you need to be able to answer some of these questions that we're asking. And that's why we created this course. We have both an online version as well as a live version. Our next live course is going to be September 24th, uh, 2022 in uh, Rhode Island at the Perform Better headquarters. Uh, You can find out more about us and our course at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com, as well as and we also have a a free teaser course on there if you'd like to take that kind of get a a little bit of a taste, Um, as well as follow us on social media at uh, all the principles of program design on any of the outlets as well as it's at Coach Mike Perry um, on Instagram, or just look up Mike Perry on, on any of the feeds, as well as Eric Degatti, um, E-R-I-C-D-A-G-A-T-I on any social media and, and put us, uh, uh, put us on your feed and, and, and ask us any questions you like. And if you have any ideas for future shows or questions you like answered, we're happy to do that as well. But, uh, any closing thoughts before we sign off?
1: Um, you know what, if we'd love to see you at that course down in Providence, um, we have some special sort of giveaways too, some opportunities to uh, spend a little extra time with us. And uh, that will be all on the website. So uh, hopefully we'll see you guys at some point at a live course. And uh, if you have any questions, just reach out. We'd love to uh, answer those for you. And uh, you know, if you are interested in potentially coming on the podcast, shoot us a message and we could set something up.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Principles of Performance Podcast.